Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining me today. It's so great to connect. Thank you, Devin, for having me. Oh, the, the pleasure is all mine. You know, uh, you have such a national reputation for uh, good counsel, uh, especially around crowdfunding. It's really an honor to have you on the show. I, I'm a huge fan of crowdfunding, but, you know, one of the things I learned is it, it isn't easy. Uh, you know, there are things we have to take seriously. And, yeah. and so people often need the kind of help you provide. So tell us a little bit about your law practice. Yes. Um, so I am, a, a, well, I changed the name depending on who I'm speaking with because crowdfunding is still relatively new. So I, w- I would intentionally, when I started, call myself a crowdfunding securities attorney be- with the intention of spreading the word about crowdfunding. But now I generally go by business capital um, because also, you know, I find people raising, for instance, Rule 506C and not realizing that's crowdfunding. But anywho, um, I'm a business capital attorney who represent uh, investment companies, small businesses, even nonprofits and co-ops, um, cooperatives with the legal strategy and compliance of raising capital from investors. So the legal strategy could look like anywhere from research, uh, researching the various rules, um, working with the founder or the business owner to determine which type of exemption will be appropriate for them based on their needs, based on their wants. And the compliance is simply, you know, my team and I forming the entities, articles and corporation, the operating agreement and the investment contracts, as well as the filing with the SEC or the state regulatory bodies. Part of what your mission is as a, as a business, I think is to, at least address mm-hmm. social justice. Yeah. Uh, you, you try to work with a lot of folks who uh, are in underrepresented communities. Tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about your work in that regard. Yes. So to be honest, Devin, if that wasn't part of my work, I would have no interest in securities or even crowdfunding. Although crowdfunding has an element of community lawyering, which is where my background stems from, or community development that I, I just enjoy anyway. But even with community development or community economic development, I still have a racial justice lens, partly because of my background. Um, it's, it's clear, you know, when you're younger, you're recognizing your own identities. But more importantly, you know, just those things stand out the most for me. Um, but yes, so my firm has a specific mission, right, to uh, represent Black and Afro-Latinx. And I, and I say Afro-Latinx because people don't understand that race is a race and, and, and language and cultures, all these things are different. And even in other countries, particularly in Latinx countries, you know, um, Afro-Cuban or Afro-Honduran, blah, blah, blah. The issues seem to be very, uh, the stark differences amongst the difference in races is still there. Um, so anywho, so I, I wanted to make sure we include that and make that a, a pronouncement, but also women, right? Um, you know, I represent women as well because women also face unique challenges when raising capital. Um, and then when you combine the gender and the race, especially with black women, right, the issue is, is, is super stark. I mean, the statistics show that black women, despite being the most educated, as in, in proportion, the most with, with degrees, secondary degrees, um, leading, you know, most likely to lead households, uh, most likely to become entrepreneurs are still the least likely to be funded. And so, you know, those things really what motivated me to really specifically narrow the focus to um, entrepreneurs of color. Black women, Black Afro-Latinx. Um, and like I said, if it wasn't for that, I don't. I think it would get boring, to be quite honest. <laughs> uh, 
Um, you know, because the work is transactional, you draft contracts, blah, blah, blah. But like, what gets you going, right? Like, why are we doing this? Like, when you see a founder raise capital for their business that then bring back resources and other products and goods to real communities, that's what really get me going, right? Um, and, and then so, but to that point, what you find, not only are they, these companies that are the least likely to be funded or have challenges in the funding space, they also have challenges in getting or gaining access to quality legal representation, but also other professional support, right? And so we wanted to kind of do our part, or I, along with the team that I formed later on, to do our part to be part of the change, right? As lawyers, like what is our role as a lawyer in the space? Well, let's be social ethical lawyers, right? Let's be community lawyers. Let's focus beyond just the transactional work, but what is the ultimate social goal that we're trying to attain? That's fantastic. Uh, you know, that that work is so in, incredibly important. Uh, you know, they, uh, I think a lot of people um, don't fully appreciate, I'm sure I don't fully appreciate all the challenges, the, the systemic challenges, but I've studied it a little bit and, and it's shocking. You know, some of, some of us weren't raised in, or, or in a way where we experienced it or even saw it close hands. We don't appreciate things like, um, the, you know, after World War II, the GI Bill created a mechanism for, for veterans to buy mm-hmm. homes. Mm-hmm. But uh, African-American veterans weren't allowed to participate in that right. program. It's heartbreaking mm-hmm. to think about mm-hmm. uh, that, that deliberate exclusion. But it was the only way to get the GI Bill passed was that right. racist caveat. And so it passed with that mm-hmm. racist caveat. Uh, uh, during um, uh, the next couple of decades, uh, you know, again, as, as home ownership created wealth in this country among many communities, um, there were systematic programs of redlining required, not not ignored, but often required by federal law mm-hmm. uh, so that uh, banks were not lending in neighborhoods with high numbers of African-American people. Right. Again, it was racial by design. Uh, it was governmental. It was strategic. And so as recently as that, right, uh, ignoring some of the more controversial recent things, uh America has been systematically making it more difficult for African-Americans to accumulate wealth. And so it it is time for us to have more of a reckoning. And uh, while we work, not instead of working on systemic change in my mind, but while we work on that, it seems like uh, supporting uh, African-American entrepreneurs via crowdfunding is one way many of us in the broader community can engage. As you and I were chatting before, you made a really important observation that there is a big difference between investing in Mm. an African-American community and investing with the African-American community. Tell us a little bit about your thoughts on that. Yes. Um, So we were, Speaking, well, you mentioned, and, and, and you mentioned a key point with, with right? Um, because I, I think people somehow um, think that when, say, for instance, a Black woman rate or has a business and she's looking to raise capital, somehow her business is not viable for investment or is not worthy of investment. But really, really that's not true. Um, 
a lot of the times it's because of who she is and her identity as a woman, as a black person. Because if you take that same business and put it in the hands of a white male, a white man, people are white, other white men are jumping at it, right? Who has holds all this wealth, right? Um, and so part and so going back to the community aspect, so the community, black communities and Latinx communities are not necessarily some and by inherently or something inherently wrong with them. Especially in cities like Chicago, these, these industrial cities with brick homes and you know, you just see the the old wealth. Um, it's the fact that black and Latinx live there and that, you know, people don't want to build with them. And so instead what happens is, you know, while there's interest in, with amongst redevelopers and other investors, they would invest through the opportunity zones without the black community, right? So here we are, we'll have, you know, a high rise pop up or some 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 super center pop up in the in a neighborhood that was formerly considered a ghetto or or too harsh, right, to, to develop. Um, but it wasn't too harsh when the, the redeveloper was a white guy who said, Hey, I have the heart to do this. Give me city funding, give me state funding. And then and it happens, right? And so I've seen on the flip side where a black redeveloper or up a coming redeveloper saying, hey, I want to do this, want to rebuild this black community. Uh, too risky. We don't know yet. And so anyways, long-winded way of saying it's not the business itself, nor is it the community itself. It's who's leading those communities and who's leading those efforts that really gets the, the bias going. And so then we have to talk about race. So going back to the, what you're talking about, the systematic, it is very intentional. And so today we have to be intentional to reverse it. It's not enough to just act like it doesn't exist and we're all going to happy-go-lucky, kumbaya, when that's not reality, right? We should be very intentional about re- reversing it by saying Black, saying women, saying, you know, saying these issues, these, these identities, because this is how the laws are written before. We have to redress them um, by being intentional about it. Yeah. Crowdfunding doesn't certainly, I want to be clear that we don't overstate it. Crowdfunding doesn't solve uh, social justice issues with this single swipe, but right. it, it is a tool you're using to help uh, African-American and Latinx entrepreneurs, right? Tell us a little bit about how it works for that community. Yeah. So traditional funding, which, you know, what typically is defined as bank financing, um, venture capital, which is private securities capital, or even in a philanthropic space, foundations, right? I mean, nonprofits can also raise capital and usually do it through philanthropy or even government grants. But, But what you find is that most of that funding, traditional funding, uh, when it is available, does not go to black or brown communities or entrepreneurs or nonprofits, right? Even when it's an initiative described as racial equity. Like, for instance, in 2020, I think it was, I want to say, at least $1 billion that was diverted through philanthropy for racial equity issues, and yet most of that went to white-led organizations. And so going back again, it's not who's doing it or who's raising it, it's all, or it is who. <laughs> it's not what it is. It's who's raising it where we see the racial bias comes in and that, you know, the funders rather uh, fund white-led initiatives, particularly white male-led initiatives, than they would black or brown. And so crowdfunding can lend itself to that same sort of racial bias, again, if it's not intentionally checked, right? But it does have sort of an alternative feel because how crowdfunding works, it usually, it, not usually, most of your funders, if not um, at least in the beginning, significant amount of your funders will come from your own community. And so that does open a gate a lot more. So it's more democratizing than having one funder, such as a bank or one venture capitalist, right, that you have to buy their int- or their, their favor. And so that does help a bit. Um, 
again, it's not bulletproof, like it's not bulletproof from the system of racism, right? However, it does help alleviate some of those burdens by basically telling the founder, look within your own communities for as little as how much your community can afford. So a lot, small dollar amounts, but aggregated with so many people that can help you get to your goal versus one investor. How how would you like members of the broader community to participate in those deals? How would you would you encourage people to do it? And if so, how would you encourage them to participate and look for those kinds of opportunities? That's a good question because I do represent the business side or the business owner or the entrepreneur, and I let and I don't think as much about the investor side. Um, I don't work with investors, except for investment companies. But when I work with them, it's technically a business <laughs> until they start making investments. Um, but one thing I I would say, and I looked at some of these deals. How can I put it? <laughs> the deal should be very clear as to what it's doing, how it would get your money. And what type of formula it should the, the owner, the business owner, the entrepreneur should have worked with whether an accountant, a financial planner, or even the, the, themselves to say very clear based on this calculation or this prior revenue or these projections, I can realistically say more likely than not, this is what your return will be. Right. What I have seen is, oh, well, you'll see the term upon the discretion of the, the, the business owner or. Again, that's a good sort of catch-all and, and, and a safety net for the, the entrepreneurs raising capital, but it doesn't. It has to have more. And, and and I say that because if I see that, it doesn't. Me as an investor doesn't tell me when I can get a return. And mind you, these are private offerings, so it's not like I can just go and easily sell it to the next person. Which there are some changes in trying to create secondary markets and crowdfunding, but it's just not as easily or transferable, let's just say. And so if I'm looking at a deal. I want to see if it's laid out, A, the business model, very clear. I know exactly what you're doing. And then if you have, you know, some history and if not any history, well, well, how do you base your business based on the general market that can show some type of viability or market fit, right? To show that you're going just like business A over here, you could do the same or somewhere, or, or somewhere better. But it, it, and it's a formula. And mind you, I'm not a math person at all. I would say work in the space. I've gotten better. <laughs> but but it, it could be a narrative and it could just show, get from point A to point B. And I see that with crowdfunding, some of these entrepreneurs got lazy or if they were used to venture capital space, whether it was because they felt like the crowdfunding investor was not as sophisticated or whether they just didn't have the right support, I will see some of these deals really are missing that meat. And then I worry that when it's time to distribute returns or uh, some type of like distributions or whatnot, Will the investor actually receive anything? And then I think so. Also, those expectation has to be met. Whereas you know that wasn't communicated. So anywho, I think that that is what I would look for. Is when you're looking at the offering document, definitely see if the founder took the time to illustrate to you how and when money will be returned to you. Fantastic! That's brilliant. Well, uh, Elizabeth, uh, you are uh, an impressive, accomplished woman. Oh, thank you. Uh, you're an impressive, accomplished human. Uh, what is your superpower? My superpower? I think I have the ability to spark interests, movements, and to, to really, really get people going. 
And I say that from my experience, you know, when I was in a co-op was, I'm still in a co-op space, especially when I was on the organizing and forming entities. And I really have the ability, even with the crowdfunding, I was, you know, in the, in the, in the midst of building a coalition, right? It's like, I'm constantly thinking of ways for us to collaborate and to make things easier and better and, and more sustainable over time. So I would say my superpower is the ability to bring folks together and to spark some action, right? Um, I think I'm a movement person at heart for sure. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Can you think of an example of a success that you're proud of that you can tie back to that superpower that you used your superpower, achieved a success you're proud of? Share us that story. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll even mention my law firm, which is soon to be a cooperatively owned law firm. Um, and I say that because I'm listening to the women that I'm bringing on board and they're telling me, you know, sometimes when you do things, you're not, you don't take it. You really don't take a step, step back and, and, and just smell the roses, right. Or stop, stop, stop to smell the roses. And so anyway, part of my firm, not only are we representing underrepresented business owners, nonprofits and, and co-ops with the strategy and clients raising capital. The other part of the mission of the firm is to increase the, the diversity within securities law crowdfunding, right? From the legal perspective, um, you know, Black women represent about 2% in the legal field in general, um, 4% Black people in, as a whole. Um, and then when you talk about securities, dismal, right? And so then you say, well, how is it that when Black women are the fastest growing group of entrepreneurs, their numbers are increasing, they're going to need funding, they're going to need support, Who's there to really support them in a way that they can feel comfortable, in a way that they understand that they will have confidence that the practitioner understand their challenges. That that is where you know we come in to try to help resolve that one by one. And so we have a law clerkship program where it's, it's designed to train other Black women law students and law fellows to work in this space. Um, I can tell you when I was in law school, I had no interest in securities. I just thought of Wall Street and, and big corporations. I said, that has nothing to do with, our, with community or anything, but I was wrong. <laughs> I was wrong <laughs> probably because crowdfunding was still relatively new while I was in law school and I didn't know anything yeah. about it. And so now looking back, I wish someone would have told me, you know, no, this is something you can use for good, for a superpower, right? And so I will say I'm very proud of the programming that we're building around that, because I see the changes in these young women who are saying, for instance, one of them actually been licensed since 2003 and said, like, I hadn't, I didn't feel law was for me. And really until I started working with you because you do it so differently. And I'm like, really? Right? No, not just, not little me, you know, because again, you, you don't think you're doing anything that stark of a difference because you do it from the heart. And so I will say that is a very proud moment for sure. Oh, that's great. That's great. Mm. If you were thinking about uh, this this woman, for instance, that just joined you, mm-hmm. uh, or anyone, but maybe think of her as you answer this question. If you were trying to coach her to develop these same skills, to spark a movement, uh, how would you coach her to develop that ability to, to help you to extend your ability to spark a movement. No, that's a, that is a really good question, Devin. And I say that because, so we just hired a summer law clerk and probably the deciding factor was a question that we asked her, why do you want to do this? So, uh, you know, we received a number of answers from the, from the different um, law students and some will say, 
well, you know, I wanted, I want to do business or, um, it, it was really very transactional. I want to learn contracts. It was something to that effect where she really ultimately just said, I want to help people. <laughs> she had, she did, um, she did like different, different community, you know, sort of roles before. And to me, that matters more because I can teach you the transaction. I can teach you how to write a memo. We can work together how to draft this contract. And that's something you're a law student with. We'll figure it out. The professors are teaching you this, right? But we can't teach you the, what's in your heart and why, what moves you. But so your question is very difficult for me to answer because it sounds like, how do I teach someone to have passion? But maybe I need to think on that. And I think part of it may be relating what we could do if I have someone in my face that asks that question. It's like, I really want to find a passion. I think what I, I often tell people is don't think of money first. Think of if you could do anything in the world and money was not an issue, what would you do? And you'll hear all types of just great impact. An artist, um, social justice, it will really be issues that relate to people if you took out the money part, right? And so that's what I would tell someone. I would try to help them find that passion within the crowdfunding spaces that money's going to come, like, especially in this country, we're in America, <laughs> money's going to come. And, and I say that sort of, you know, loosely, but the reality is, is that I truly do, that gets me going because as we do the good work, of course, you're going to find out how to sustain it because you, you really love this work. You're going to, the pandemic, I, I re-rented the firm to work in this space. There was really no no money coming in. It was like, whoo, what do we, especially when it shut down. Oh, you should have seen me. I, I never panicked before about anything. But I kept going and I think what kept me going was the, the passion, right? If you were only doing it for money, of course, you're like, nope, next, what's next? <laughs> and you're going to constantly change your mind. So I will say that. I will say, Really work with someone to focus on what gets them going. Like what wakes you up in the morning, like every day. Yeah. Like, what gets you going? Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, Elizabeth, I really appreciate your insights, and thank you for taking the time to be with me today with the audience. Uh, you're very kind. Before you go, would you take just a minute and tell people how they can learn more about your law firm and how they can connect with you personally? Yes, thank you. Um, Website is, is we, you know, is designed to be an educational resource. I will say go there, www.elcesq.com. There you'll find articles where myself and my law clerks and fellows have written on topics it's from crowdfunding to crypto, uh, data privacy as it relates to raising capital, as well as different webinars, podcasts, interviews such as this, um, and even programming that we've created and interviewed others in the space. I think that will be a viable resource for folks to, one, introduce themselves to it, but also to learn more, especially if they're on the fence of hiring an attorney just yet. Um, also, social media at ELC, ESQLLC, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Fantastic. Fantastic. Elizabeth, thank you so much. Thank we wish you. you every success in helping people to accomplish more and do more good in the world. And we look forward so enthusiastically to having you speak at SuperCrowd 22. It's going to be great. Uh, and so we just wish you every success in your great work. Thank you. Thank you so much, Devin. All righty. Let's do some good. <laughs> yes, let's do it. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to the Superpowers for Good show, twice each week, 
we host changemakers who share their impact, insights, and superpowers. Don't miss another episode. Subscribe today at superpowersforgood.com. That's superpowers, number four, good.com. Be super empowered. Get your copy of the book, Superpowers for Good, as an ebook, audiobook, paperback, or hardcover edition via your favorite online retailer. Interested in having me speak to your company, organization, or association? Visit devonthorpe.com. Then let's talk. Now, keep using your superpowers for good. Together, we can reverse climate change, improve global health, and eradicate poverty.